What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. Hey, my mushroom, my lion's mane mushroom kit <laughs> is sprouting. Oh, fungal radio again. You know what I really need, Stephen? I need something to control to make the humidity and light yeah, and temperature constant. But how are you going to hook up a, a bunch of sensors? How are you going to do that? And... How are you going to do that? And then imagine all the code you got to write. Oh, God, this is too much. These kind of problems really get on my nerves. <laughs> Welcome back to Beam Radio. I am Steven Nunez. And today we're going to be talking about what the Beam can do. Start off by introducing our panel. We have Lars Vickman. Hello. Alex Kutmus. Howdy, howdy. Josh Adams. Hello. And Bruce Tate. Hi from Chattanooga. Make sure to send your questions in to at Beam Radio on Twitter, hashtag process mailbox. If we pick your question, you get a shirt. Real easy transaction. Uh, this week's question comes from Adolfo. Uh, he's at Adolfo NT on Twitter. Uh, do you think for the panel, do you think that Elixir could be a good first programming language? And do you think it could be a good book to focus on this? I'll take an initial shot at that. I think that, so there have been a couple of, of problems establishing Elixir in, in a high school that I work at, mainly getting everything installed and everything set up for, for people who aren't using used to dealing with these kinds of problems. I think that Livebook could be a game changer once we have some, I don't know, some some training wheels on it and and some some guardrails for security purposes. You know, maybe maybe with you know kind of kind of flowing things through, you know, making it easy to kind of run the thing in Siberia, right? To kind of uh, section it off and and putting some guardrails on it. I I think that it could really make a big difference. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about live book for uh, like education purposes. But uh, yeah, another thing I was going to say was, I, I think if you if you use it as a starting off language, the fact that you don't have to worry about a lot of these uh, OOP things like passing by reference or passing by value, I think makes it an easy language to pick up. But once you start getting into the you know kind of concurrency primitives, it's probably you know, a lot harder to you know to, to pick up those things and understand them. But uh, I mean, if you're if you're a beginner, you're not really worried about those things either way. So I, yeah, it'd be interesting to, uh, you know, to, to get some, you know, some feedback from people who learned Elixir as a first language. I feel certain it's got to be better than C as a first language. So, so I don't know, like there's some amount of just y'all to be able to do it. I think the two things really lend it, lend it well to being the first programming language. The first is the idea of, of transformations and, and setting things up with a pipe. Elixir has really done a wonderful job in, in establishing the pipe for transformations. And you know, I've been working with this, this mental framework called CRC, construct, reduce, convert with, with new developers. And that tends to work really well. So the other thing that, that I think tends to work well with, with new developers is that it's a dynamic language. So you don't have to absorb all of the baggage of of the type system. And, and I say baggage mainly as, as the idea that for new developers, especially in functional languages, types can, can really be a, a tough lift. So um, in order to kind of kind of take that, to take programming one step at a time, you know, first functions and then types is, is a, a pretty cool thing in Elixir. 
Yeah, for me, I think it it has potential to be a really good first programming language for one big reason. It's cross-platform and it works really well cross-platform. Um, the hard thing is like setup is always a pain in anything, right? I taught Ruby for a long time and Ruby mostly works, but once you start doing Rails on Windows, you're going to want to, you're not going to be happy. But you can go pretty far with like, Electron Erlang on on if you're on Windows, Mac, Linux works really well, um, and I do think that I agree with you, Bruce. Like hiding a lot of those concepts or kind of sidestepping a lot of them for a while buys you a lot, right? Um, a, a concurrency and uh, like all that stuff is hard, but truthfully, for beginners, like it's all it's all hard. It's all chaos. Just sort of like pick what kind of chaos you want to introduce. So I think I think it could happen. Let's make it happen real quick. It's got like a weekend to make a, you know, to revolutionize like coding education. Awesome, Adolfo, thank you so much for that question. Uh, the shirt is incoming. Uh, take a moment to thank our sponsor, Groxio. Uh, Bruce, what do we got going on in Groxio? Yeah, so I just talked about this composition pattern, the CRC. So we're going to be moving into Ecto, but mainly we're going to think about Ecto from in the spirit of composition, especially lettering queries and, and, and having a cool API, but with trapdoors underneath so that you can access the layer of abstraction underneath. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And then we're going to chase that immediately with Elixir's index and Axon. And, and we're going to kind of move some of the machine learning concepts that, that we've been covering in the Julia language, which is a bit more mathematically concise into the Elixir space. So yeah, come join us. That's so cool. I'm really excited to get my hands on that. Uh, today's topic lead is Josh. Uh, Josh, why don't you take it away? Hey, happy to. So uh, happy to announce that our guest today is Brian Hunter. Uh, I first met Brian in Nashville. So there was a Ruby Hoedown conference that I would go to regularly. And uh, Brian was there at one of the after parties and we were talking. And I talked to him about this little text animation toy that I, that I had built. And I had test driven it the whole way. It was in Ruby. I really liked it. But like I got to a point where I wanted to extend it beyond what its original scope was. And it had this really weird, nasty bug where somewhere in the lower level part of the system, I was doing a, an irreversible mutation. So I was merging two layers down. And because of this, I couldn't animate my animation. So if I wanted an animation that also traced a path, it would like smear. And so I talked about this with Brian and he laughed and he said, uh, I probably just wanted to do functional programming because like, I literally wouldn't run into an immutability problem in that case. I wouldn't have ever gotten into this problem. I could always have sidestepped it. Uh, and so that was really neat. And to have that conversation happen uh, just very briefly at a conference, that's why I like conferences and miss them very much. Um, anyway, and then, uh, and then later I got into Erlang like a couple months later and lo and behold, Nash FP was this thing happening in Nashville and, and Brian Hunter is running the Nash FP meetup and he's teaching people Erlang in a, a, like an Erlang school. And so uh, me and Robbie Clements, Robbie Clements lived up there. He's one of my best friends uh, in Nashville. So uh, we went through with Brian, we got hooked on Erlang. It was really great. And then there's this mostly Erlang podcast and it's like the only Erlang podcast in, in the world at the time. Uh, now there's tons of them, what a, what a quaint time. And uh, he, he was there as well. So Brian was unavoidable and he had a really uh, important hand getting me interested in Erlang. And so I really appreciated knowing him for a long time. And with that, Brian, hey, why don't you introduce yourself too? Wow, thanks. Thanks, Josh. That's really cool. <laughs> uh, good to be here. Uh, I, um, Brian Hunter, uh, currently, I guess, you know, people have to say what they're doing now, and then we'll walk back until, uh, until I'm in kindergarten or something, I guess. But uh, uh, what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm a fellow at HCA Healthcare. 
And so this is a big, big company. Uh, we have 186 hospitals or 100, like 185, in, in that territory of hospitals. And these are owned by HCA. And there are 2,000 surgery centers, physician practices, clinics, and so on as well. And so we have, you know, scattered all over the country and all of this data coming in. And I'm in the middle of it doing Elixir. And this is uh, this is the water park project at HCA, right? Yeah. So the water park uh, started up as a pure research project. Uh, so there was uh, an executive uh, at HCA, and we uh, had both been reading Dealers of Lightning, uh, the story from Xerox Park, and um, uh, and so we would meet up every once in a while and talk about this. And uh, uh, I mentioned the idea is like, why don't we pick up? A research project where we try some of the ideas that I've been, you know, uh, talking to you about here at HCA, uh, and and let's see how what this what this would look like. And so I came on for uh, what was then I guess going to be a short short project, just research spikes. We organized the work around a, a series of proof of concepts or these proofs that we would build out. It's like uh, so there's this we'd interview and we'd find these problems uh, that were at HCA in healthcare and integration. And we would uh, uh, say, okay, how would we solve this problem? And how would we solve this problem? And we, we identified a list of problems. And then we began just uh, setting up these two-week time boxes of saying, okay, let's see how far we can make it on solving that problem. And uh, usually it would go about a week into it, we had completely solved the problem when we were looking for uh, additional things to do. And so uh, and the nice thing about a proof of concept and in these proofs, these these small scale models is you can leave out everything other than the problem you're actually solving. And so uh, so it's in one sense very powerful and another it, it can give a false sense of, of how fast it takes to actually ship something. Uh, but uh, but it does open up your eyes to possibilities. And so uh, uh, one of the early uh, proofs that we did was to say, hey, can we model a hospital, uh, say a big hospital? And can we model bringing in a full weeks of data uh, into the actor model and spin up each patient that we see in this data up as a patient actor? And, uh, and the idea here we wanted to do is we wanted to model each of these, uh, these humans uh, that, that came, each of these patients, these people that came to our facilities, and we wanted to, to treat them as a, as a real living running thing instead of... Um, Instead of just like a row in a database, uh, and, and so uh, a lot of us get treated as rows in a database, and and whenever you're interacting with some clerk or something, that row gets loaded from a database. But here we have these live running things, and so that proof we were able to uh, process the data. So initially we had to learn how to process healthcare data, but uh, in this initial proof we were able to go from zero to spinning up uh, this large hospital um, in this two week period. And we had the performance of, we were processing a, a, a week of data from this facility in just a couple seconds. And so we were bringing in and spinning up uh, thousands and thousands of, of patient actors, loading up their entire transcripts. And, uh, and so that was, that was a real victory at that point. And so when people heard about this, they were you know, sort of stunned. And, uh, and this is not the way that most systems in healthcare work. Uh, you know, any, anytime you go into an industry, uh, that's been sort of a backwater, you'll find that the tech hasn't kept pace with with things outside of that 
uh, of that backwater. And, you know, in, in any industry is like this. It doesn't matter if you're in healthcare or oil services or, you know, forestry, <laughs> you know, whatever you're doing, uh, restaurants, there's going to be some system uh, there where everything feels like a decade older than it should or, or two decades older than it should. And, um, and when people have to cross sell across industries, that's whenever they have to stay on the edge. But so what we're doing is we're taking um, a technology that hadn't been applied really in healthcare and um, and applying it, and we're we're seeing these victories, and so that led the series of research uh, uh, proofs. Uh, we kept on uh, getting closer and closer to these goals that had at once seemed maybe unsolvable, and we were solving them uh, in, in small scale models and moving forward. And uh, towards the end of that year, uh, this research uh, R and D uh, got picked up as a product. And so uh, we started spinning up a team and started slowly forming this this project called Water Park. That's really cool. That's a really uh, that's a really awesome story. Uh, what did the technology look like beforehand? And do you have like metrics uh, from you know the solution that was in place beforehand? And how did that compare to the you know the the actor model based system you know after uh, kind of this this POC phase? That's a good question. And all of the things that were there beforehand are actually still there. Sometimes the, the, the model will be, hey, let's build a new thing and then replace all the old stuff. And, and that can be really costly. And sometimes you end up in just about the same spot you were before after a whole lot of work and a whole lot of churn. And so uh, uh, a real important, uh, really important idea from lean manufacturing is, uh, is continuous improvement uh, instead of, uh, and so I think a lot of times our industry is focused on continuous change instead of continuous improvement. And, and we can stay busy, but not actually get anything done. Uh, we can stay really busy. Uh, you know, a lot of people burn out with, you know, 80, hundred hour weeks. And, uh, at the end of the year, it's like, what did they get done? Really? You know, they, they, they rebuilt everything. <laughs> and so we left, uh, everything that was there before untouched. Uh, some of these packages have been running for 20, 30 years, and they're out there and they're doing their job. And, and so the biggest thing we wanted to do was to open up new capabilities. And we wanted to do everything we could to protect those existing systems. And so, uh, so if there was a tendency, uh, so as, you know, big data uh, uh, becomes the thing that is in every CIO magazine, and, uh, and uh, over the last decade, and so people start thinking about throwing higher velocity and bigger volume and all this at a system, well, systems that were built before that uh, that hype uh, hit uh, CIO magazines, uh, those systems were around way before that, and they weren't built to handle whatever the the current fad or the hype is or the or the reality. You know, so I don't want to be entirely dismissive. I mean, so, some of these things are real, and and, and you, you jump on it because it is real, but. Um, the existing systems were built to handle a certain amount of load, certain amount of volume, and they could. You can scale them out horizontally to a certain amount, uh, but as you start wanting to do more and more of the new cool things, uh, you start putting pressure on these old systems, and you can cause those old systems to then break. And it's not the old technology's fault. <laughs> you know, it was built to handle the need as it was, and it's the usage of it trying to force it to do things it was never engineered for. 
And so, uh, you know, instead of having the car bridge, we're now sending dump trucks over it. Well, that's a bad idea and you're, the bridge is gonna collapse. And so we were there uh, to make sure we had pressure relief uh, for existing systems that have been there. We were there to make sure uh, and take additional load away from those systems. So uh, for example, if a hospital has a velocity of a certain number of records coming in uh, per minute for a patient, uh, and it's been handling that for decades, it's probably gonna stay and gonna be able to do that and it's all solid. But say you want to hook up some IoT device that is taking real-time telemetry off of a bed, and you've got heartbeats coming in. Every time there's a heartbeat, every, you know, you've got uh, all this data coming in flowing, and you've got that for every patient at uh, you know, and, you know, 200 hospitals and all these places. You've got all this data flowing in. That is absolutely going to crush uh, systems that were meant to handle like a dozen messages or you know, 50 messages for a patient over that same period of time. Now you're getting thousands. And so, so we were there to handle that kind of problem. Uh, then too, a lot of the uh, packages uh, that you will see are built by vendors and they were there for a special purpose of, of doing a job of, you know, getting data from here to there. They're not programming models. They're not programming platforms. They're, you know, you have to glue things together. And so there wasn't this there wasn't this idea of being able to uh, to respond to changes in a healthcare environment uh, around this idea of a patient, and ha and so th that was just a concept that didn't exist. Uh, and so we're we're now able to apply code uh, that's very domain specific. And so instead of gluing a bunch of vendor software together, we've built something that was needed uh, off of the requirements. We had a note here, and it seems like it's probably relevant now. So this okay. is. Um... This is a healthcare system. One would assume that availability is important in a healthcare system. Um, and so, so tell us what the Beam lets you do in terms of availability in, in this system that you're building. Yeah, so, um, so we've been playing around entirely doing research and development. And so uh, this was good fun. It was aimed at an important thing. So it was rewarding in that sense, but it was off there. It was entirely in the lab. Uh, and entirely research and not being used uh, uh, directly uh, to, to help patients. Uh, we were augmenting other systems and telling people when maybe things were missed and, and being safety nets for other systems that were trying things. If, if, if they failed, we would be there to pick up. When COVID hit, uh, we all of a sudden went from um, this proof of concept that had been running up on a cluster to, to being something that had to be not just available, but really needed to be continuously available. And while, you know, healthcare things can't really go down, uh, the reality is, is things do go down and we needed to not, <laughs> we needed to be an exception to this thing. I, I have, uh, you know, not at HCA hospitals, but I've been at hospitals uh, with my dad, you know, decades ago, and uh, we'd be at the ER for something and the EMR, uh, the, 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 uh, the system that basically the hospital runs on, uh, would be entirely down because of some maintenance, a patch that didn't work overnight. You know, they would they'd plan to take a downtime for an hour or two in the middle of the night. Your dad happens to get a moth in his ear. <laughs> and so you show up to the ER and uh, and so you're there and their EMR is down. And, uh, you know, of course, a moth in the ear is not as bad as if you went in for, uh, you know, something else. But uh, but you can just see that things at a hospital don't really work well when the whole EMR is down. And that kind of thing can happen because of a bad patch. It can happen because of a, a backhoe driving over the fiber. Don't get so, sick on patch Tuesday. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, things can go bad there. And so uh, we wanted to be this place of calm 
where if other things were failing, at least we would be able to pick up some slack for systems that were, you know, maybe purchased from a vendor where, you know, they weren't really thinking about high availability and fault tolerance and all those Erlangy things. And so, so we were bringing these Erlangy things into a domain where they, it was more important than phone calls. <laughs> so, uh, and so, uh, you know, Joe and Robert and Mike, they, they did an awesome, awesome thing. And they were solving the problem of, of, of fault tolerance and, and high availability at, uh, at Ericsson. And of course, you know, doctors make phone calls too. And sometimes the phone calls are really important. So, I, you know, I'd be a little flip there, but um, the, you know, here, this is a domain where the stuff does really need to work. And um, it, it felt wrong for so long. Uh, since I first bumped into Erlang, it felt wrong that this wasn't uh, at healthcare. And so I had an earlier tour at HCA uh, back in the 90s, uh, from 97 to 2003, I had worked at HCA. And, uh, and so I'd seen, you know, the inside view of, of, of what a large healthcare company looks like. And then I'd been off, uh, uh, had a consultancy for uh, 12 years afterwards where we'd worked with hundreds of clients and, and you saw all the kinds of problems that they had. And when I bumped into Erlang though, I, uh, uh, uh we maybe talk about that story there, but, uh, but when I bumped into Erlang, I kept on seeing as like, why in the world is this company not using Erlang? And, uh, and so that when I bumped into Erlang, I kept replaying these stories, uh, from my first tour at HCA. And so all these ideas of the patient actor and all these ideas of, uh, of, of having uh, highly available fault tolerant patient healthcare data uh, had been, you know, I've been basically working on those projects for free in my head <laughs> for, you know, for a decade before I actually showed up for my first day. And so maybe the proofs went so fast because I'd already been thinking about it for 10 years, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, uh, so, for fault tolerance and high availability, uh, we, we try to be this spot of calm, uh, even when things are going really badly. And so we're continuously available. Uh, so when we went production, it really meant something to us to say we're going to flip the switch. And we weren't exactly ready, uh, but there are a whole lot of things that we uh, that were on the design uh, on the board that we were like, okay, we'll put these to the side and it's time, uh, it's time for us to do important things right now. And so we put those, uh, uh, those fun geeky bits over to the side and we, we, we've spent three weeks of hardening the system or in a funny way, maybe softening the system. Uh, but we made the system where it would be really malleable and allow us to make changes to it while it was running, because we knew that we would never be able to take another downtime. Uh, from the moment we flipped the switch on, the system has been up and running, and we we should never go down. Uh, in 20 years, we'll be able to have a revisit of this podcast, and and the, the system should have never went down for a millisecond. And you even take it as far as so you do the hot code loading and everything, right? Uh, yeah, that's uh, we we wouldn't be able to we wouldn't have made it this year without that. And so uh, uh, I I think it's really a funny thing how the hot code loading gets thrown out as this thing that is uh, it's this esoteric thing that's like trick writing and oh it's really really awesome uh, you should learn you should learn Erlang because it has this awesome thing of hot code loading but you should never actually use it <laughs> and so the story is this weird uh, it's like come come to us because we've got this super cool thing but never use this in production because it's too hard and then uh, if uh, if you have a set of features that you're gonna uh, think about supporting in a language this is gonna be the first one to drop because it's not important and it's just crazy because it's this superpower that is there from the very beginning uh, because of uh, you know the origin story of Erlang uh, and what was needed to keep systems going and uh, uh, last week's uh, 
uh, episode. Uh, well, I listened to the episode with uh, uh, Frank Hunleth, and uh, and he talked about a story that I've actually heard uh, Joe and Robert talk about. Uh, so he was saying the dread of having to go into the place to re restart the thing that had failed, and so you know, so the idea of being able to push software down is really really important, so that you don't have to visit that location. And I'd heard stories at Ericsson where there were places where, uh, you know, once they deployed something, it was it wasn't just like a uh, it'd be a pain to have to drive over there and do a thing. But if they had to send an engineer into places, there's a good there's they would have to have security details around them, and there's a chance that they might get killed. You know, going through the area to get to the base tower. And so it was, uh, you know, if you if you failed and you weren't able to hot code deploy to that, you could end up having an engineer die. And so that's uh, that's pretty serious stuff. And, and so for us, uh, us taking a downtime, uh, we, we could have had bad things happen if we took a downtime for an upgrade. And so, uh, and sometimes you release software and it looks like it is actually doing, doing all right, but you need to, um, you, you realize that there's a bug in it and the longer it goes, the, the more the problem uh, is going to compound. And so to be able to hot code upgrade that and have your entire cluster have the new code in one second is pretty, pretty powerful. So and, if I uh, understand you correctly, you're saying that if we want to make sure we have like good malleable infrastructure, we take full advantage of the beam. All we need to do is threaten to murder some percentage of the engineers <laughs> that have to do bug fixes uh, by taking the system down and that'll solve the problem. <laughs> that's a, that's a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's good to have actionable stuff come out of a conversation. <laughs> that's an action items. I got that. I got yeah. that. Incentives are very important. That's that's my takeaway. And just uh, I'll, I'll mention how we actually do the deployments. And so not every release is going out there as a as a hot code upgrade. Uh, so interestingly, we're we're doing uh, normal Erlang releases where we push out our Elixir code, uh, uh, and so we push out our releases, and we are bringing a server entirely down and bringing a server back entirely up most of the time. And so we do this as a rolling deployment across the cluster. Uh, uh, we, we have a second mechanism uh, and where we're pushing out through hot uh, code loading, and we're not actually using upgrade releases for this. We're using the Erlang primitives uh, to basically ship beams to, uh, to the, the particular beams that we're changing. We're doing beam shipping. And then we're uh, basically loading those beams onto each of those nodes. And so then the, uh, the next loop through the server loop, they come back in or the next external call into that uh, module gets reloaded with the new code. And so uh, we, we built up kit just around that. But uh, and so uh, sometimes we will uh, a couple of the patterns that we have as far as the hot code loading. And so, so sometimes we have something that is absolutely a, like we realize that oops, we screwed up and uh, there's a there's a problem out there and we have to patch it. And so that is us creating a patch. Uh, we we go ahead and uh, we we commit this into as a PR into the main branch, the fix that we're about to make. And this gets reviewed like anything else. And so, uh, you know, hot code loading uh, is isn't returning back to VB or <laughs> or to, to, you know, PHP or something like that. It's it's not quite, you know, so we're, we're trying to be um, rigorous here and so uh the the fix that we have will go through a pr process and uh then we take the artifact that actually changed from that pr after it's been merged in and test pass and so on we take that artifact and we move it off into a patch directory where we have this series of, of dated patches and then we do the beam shipping of that and we do any sort of config uh pushing that's related to that and as part of that we have to make it stick until uh the next 
full release goes out. So anything you're doing as a put in, uh, for example, you also need to write to your releases EXS file uh, so that if you have a bounce, you'll come back up. And, and so any sort of runtime config needs to be written uh, so that if the node bounces, you'll have the same config that you pushed out as a as a dynamic push. The beam is going to be out there, and so you'll uh, you'll it'll, it'll spin up. And so yeah, so that uh, that process uh, is is what we do. You know, it's when we have a, a disaster that's happened or something, we realize it's like we got to stop this quickly. Another thing we do is sometimes so we have this role in deployment. I ran into this problem uh, twice now. Uh, this past weekend, my water heater failed, uh, and and my, maybe. 10, 12 years ago, I was at another house and a water heater failed. And in both cases, uh, the drain to the water heater uh, had was clogged. <laughs> and so so uh, the first case, uh, the water heater that failed started pouring and it was up in the, the second floor and, and it poured the, the entire ceiling of the, uh, the downstairs just fell onto the floor, you know, and so and, and water gushed everywhere. And it was basically because of this this fail safe of the drain had clogged and it had failed. And uh, so we didn't know that the failsafe wasn't working. That doesn't sound safe. This, yeah. And so in the, the second instance, I had no water damage. And it's because I, I um, uh, three weeks ago, I was just lucky enough and stumbled into this water sensor thing. And I'd put down inside of the drain pan. And uh, uh, last Saturday night at one in the morning, uh, I uh, uh, the, this alarm starts going off and I go straight in there and I get the water heater turned off and get it drained. And uh, and so, and it, but it turned out that actually the drain in that case was also clogged. And so this has happened to me twice now. Um, and so, uh, an important thing I think is to make sure that dry rot or that your safety systems haven't uh, haven't failed without you knowing it. And so the you know the the joke with backups, uh, it, you know, is basically that they're write only memory. And so you spend all this time creating backup tapes, but if you ever went to restore a backup tape, you were never going to get your data back. You know, like the, the, people would go through the ceremony to say that they had they had worked hard to make this, uh, but it backups never worked. And so. Uh, it's one of those cases of, you know, they don't work unless you test that they are working. And so you have to have these disaster recovery exercises. And so those exercises are big events and they take uh, away from people. And there's a tendency to only do them once every once in a while, like maybe every year or so. So instead of that, so if you know you have some idea that's good, but you know that you're not doing it often enough, how can you make it more frequent? So one thing that we like to do in our deployments is we, when we deploy software, we use the same mechanism as if, uh, someone had came and yanked power off uh, from, the, from the back of the servers. And so as we're doing our deployments, we don't tell the server it's coming. <laughs> and so uh, the, that Erlang uh, instance, that Erlang node doesn't know that anything is about to happen to it and it goes pop. And, and, uh, and so we, we drop nodes and then we bring nodes back up with the new release and, and the data replicates from its buddies in the same way. And so this disaster recovery that is at the core of what we've built uh, uh, happens every time that we do a release. And over this past year, uh, we've, uh, so we're, we've done 400 and something bills this past year. Um, and so it's like a, you know, and not each one of those would have been a full release going out, but you know, we've had maybe a release every day or two, uh, a full release going out. And so this is this exercise of the entire cluster being pop, 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 pop. And then you bring up uh, those nodes and then you pop the next ones. And then, uh, and all this data sloshing around to replicate and get uh, basically 
uh, to catch up. And so that exercise then of, of chaos, intentional just yanking the cords is, uh, you know, is important uh, in that sense. And so, so we, that deployment model, uh, this is now to wind back how hot code loading fits into this. And so we have that model of one, on one side, we're testing uh, our fault tolerance. If we, if we drop a system and bring it back up, will it heal? And so sometimes what we're doing is we will bring uh, a release out and we will uh, release code that's latent and we'll do a dark launch basically of, of code. And then we will do after the code has deployed to all of our uh, nodes and the cluster at the different data centers, we will then uh, do hot code loading to basically flip uh, the latent code into action so that it all kicks in at the same time. So we go from, uh, so it's a, we stage the release over time and then we do a hot code loading to basically make it all live. Sometimes we, we go ahead and we do the hot code push first, if say there's something time critical, uh, it's like uh, we need to meet a deadline, we need to meet a whatever, uh, there was some important thing, if we catch this window, it's, it's better than if we uh, roll it out the next day. We go ahead and we do the PRs, we get everything ready, and we push uh, that code out and it's live immediately on all the cluster. And then we do a rolling release over that night to basically make it stick and whatever was in main gets deployed and, and it's the same as what was hot code fixed. <laughs> and so that's our, that's our pattern uh, of general just daily deployments. It sounds a lot more well thought out than my uh, open a remote shell, paste the module in. <laughs> well, that works. Uh, uh, it, 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 that works. It's a little scarier, though. Uh, we'd like to have the the undo button, uh, if possible. Uh, See, I've heard that you should work with an iterative, agile process. So I think the idea is you just keep pasting better and better code. <laughs> yeah, I have, my, I have my VS Code ship yeah. to on save ship the module. <laughs> there you go. That's that's a good idea. So you have it format your code and then deploy it each time. Yeah, you why not? Save. Yeah. Yeah. Continuous deployment. I like it. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. this could actually be a decent format for a, sort of a competitive Elixir coding challenge where, where <laughs> you get a running system and then you're supposed to reach some objectives with it. Without crashing the beam. Yeah, just keep, keep it going. That, that We've been playing that game in slow motion this past year. Uh, and, and so the game you're talking about is has been uh, the game uh, of being, you know, being a water park developer. Uh, and, and so uh, some of it has uh, interesting places where we've been uh, hurt the most. And it, it's been an interesting thing. So I, I, I go around and, uh, you know, so Nash FP, and I, I talk a lot about functional programming and speak at different conferences about, you know, why a body ought to move to FP and why OO is a big trash fire mess and get away as fast as you can. And so I, I do that. But uh, the interesting tension is uh, my buddies in, say, the F-sharp community or uh, in different stat uh, statically typed languages, Hindley-Milner system languages, and they, they get that Erlang really, the systems really stand up, and they do not understand why. And so this is the, uh, the conversation over and over is like, how, Erlang, how, you know, because uh, you don't even have a type system. And so interesting thing is, uh, how that is so important, that lack of a type system. And so this is a real tension because I, I, I have used type systems and type systems have, have let me build beautiful things and it kept me from having errors uh, in, say, in, in say whether it's C-sharp or F-sharp or uh, my little bit of Idris that I've done. 
uh, actually, none of the stuff I've done in Idris ever shipped, but the, the others did ship. And so, uh, and you would say out of a certain kind of problem, but I never had systems in those languages that would stay up and running. This past year, the, the most interesting thing, or one of the most interesting things about uh, that, that type system story uh, for us has been the, the, the most dangerous things in our code were where we use structs. And so we, the places where we actually had a little bit of a type system. <laughs> you, know, you know, so I was so excited when uh, when I saw structs appear in Elixir. I was like, yay, look at that. That's that's going to be cool. We're going to get compile time uh, uh, checks on things like this. But they the, the hardness and the correctness of a struct is not as malleable as the other data structures in the VM. And so when you go and you deploy systems and this is not even uh, about doing hot code loading. Uh, that's uh, this is about as you're doing a rolling deployment across uh, a cluster and you have data structures going from uh, swashing sloshing back and forth between uh, you know, so at any moment you've got a cluster across the data center and you've got multiple versions of the code running and and that is a that is a 3d chess uh, problem for sure uh, and we've gotten really good at playing 3d chess this past year of just thinking about and when we deploy this not only do the functions what will, will the will we be okay to uh for these two different modules with their different shapes of functions work but the data structures within them uh how do we defensively make it made that we can go up and down because the data maybe got created first on a new node and it's going to get replicated to an old node or it got created on an old node and it's going to get replicated to a new node and so you have to be able to think in time you have your time machine going forwards and back and so it's like every bad sci-fi episode rolled in about where you have to think about the, you know, are we going to affect the timeline? It, it's kind of that, but we're, we're doing that in each of our releases and, and structs make it, uh, you know, structs are like where you meet your mom. <laughs> you right, know, kind of, it, right. Like everything gets really complicated there in, yeah. in the, in the sci-fi movies there, but structs uh, have been tricky uh, in that sense because they're, they're, they're hard intentionally. Yeah, so I strongly agree with this concept. So in, in designing Elixir systems, we talked about the idea of structs in the core and simpler types around the boundary. And, yeah. um, and essentially, it's, it's all about type compatibility, right? Yeah. What you're talking about is exactly the thing. And so part of our PR uh, review, so we, we don't ban structs. Uh, uh, we, we make sure that uh, that structs in, are never shipped. And so they're never part of any data structure that gets shipped from node to node. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. So you, right on, Bruce, that's uh, and yeah. it, it, there's, there's that idea of of having your borders and your boundaries uh, be really malleable uh, and then inside as much safety as you can get. Yeah. And then you can then you can play these games with you know, what's what's a compatible interface change in a map. Right. And it, it turns out that that you're adding keys. Right. It's um, and then once once you delete a key or make a flexible key required, then you're kind of dead again. Right. So um, that's that's kind of the game. Yeah, uh, lots of um, just assuming that you have a bare map. And so uh, there, someone looking at our code, uh, they would think, oh, this is kind of an odd tick. But uh, so anytime we're doing a map get, there's almost always a default empty map there, or there's, you know, that kind of thing. And so where it's easy to leave those things off, we have uh, these Pokeyoke devices uh, throughout the code. And so uh, if that's a term uh, you're not familiar with, uh, Pokeyoke is a mistake proofing. Uh, and so a lot of uh, a lot of how even why Erlang became a thing for me was a, 
background uh, in in lean manufacturing, Toyota way, W is dimming, that that whole uh, philosophy there, and um, that is when when I first bumped into Erlang, it rang so true because all of the things that lean manufacturing and that Toyota way and all uh, all of that literature talks about resonated so strong against everything I was seeing on the beam. Um, and so, um, that's, yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> so at any given time in your system, how many processes are running and how many nodes? I know you've given a, a, a talk on sort of the architecture and it's spread across data centers and availability yeah. zones. Uh, but yeah, how much stuff's it running? Yeah. So, uh, we, um, so we have 32 servers and these are one U pizza boxes. This was really thought out. Uh, this wasn't like, uh, oh, we found some hardware. <laughs> we had enough time in our R&D phase to actually think through the next step, and we didn't just have to use what was laid out in front of us. And so we requested particular things. So we could have been cloud-based. We could have been, we could have ran in Kubernetes. We could have done anything. So, but what we chose to do is to say we want eight one-u servers in each of uh, uh, these four remote data centers um, and all these data centers. Uh, so there's in Florida and in Tennessee and Texas and in Utah. And so we wanted uh, eight servers in each of those. Some of the data centers are broken up into multiple availability zones. So that if uh, the only thing that is gonna take down the entire data center is gonna be uh, like an asteroid. Uh, so if, if like something catastrophic happens with networking, only half of that data center is gonna fail. And so they have these availability zones. And so we put four of our servers in an availability zone at that data center and four in another. And so a lot of systems would say, oh, let's stick all of our servers all in one rack and get them close together so the, the network latency will be shorter. <laughs> but our goal from the very beginning, even our dev environment, uh, it is uh, we are scattered across the country where we really have servers in Utah and we have really servers in Florida and they're really paying the cost of, of light traveling through the universe. <laughs> and so, so we have, you know, we, we are not denying physics. And, and so we're trying to have the, the fallacies of distributed computing. Uh, uh, we, we want to have a check on that. And so we have these 32 servers four in each AZ. And uh, so a total of eight at each data center. And we have a model of, uh, so, so I'm, Brian Hunter, I stub my toe and I go over to the local HCA hospital and I walk in. So there's going to be some H, uh, HL7 message. And so this is the data format that a lot of healthcare uses. Uh, it's this thing called HL7 and you can look it up on uh, Wikipedia and you could also look up uh, a library called Elixir HL7. Uh, and that is the library that we use and it's the library that we wrote and open sourced as part of this, uh, this work of Waterpark. But this uh, Elixir HL7 library, it uh, would kick in and it would see that message that came with me stubbing my toe. Uh, uh, and the, when I get pre-registered and so on at the ER, there would be a message flowing through uh, like an ADT message saying I was being uh, admitted or something. And I would maybe be moved to another room where I was getting x-rays and maybe they're giving me an aspirin and all these and messages are flowing. So the first message that came through, Waterpark gets that message and says, hey, do we have Brian Hunter on the cluster anywhere? And it's like, nope, never heard of this guy. And so we spin up a brand new patient actor on a server. And uh, so this is gonna be the rider for Brian Hunter. So this is the lead process for, for that represents me. Then we also spin up a read process, uh, a read actor 
at that same data center. So if I'm if I stub my toe, I go to a hospital in Nashville, I'm going to be set up at a Tennessee data center, right? That's where my writer is going to be. Okay. And so the reader is going to be spun up there too. But there's also going to be a reader replica of me spun up in Florida and at Texas and at Utah. And so there are going to be four read replicas of me that would have all of the data that my writer replica has. And so, uh, and these are all running in RAM. Uh, so the, there's no disk involved in this. You know, so all this data, when we're talking about modeling all these patients and we've had no downtime, we don't have Postgres and we don't have a disk. We don't have, I mean, this is entirely RAM and the replicas are happening. Uh, basically we're treating the servers on the cluster like the stripes of a RAID array. And we, we say, uh, okay, this writer lives here. The reader has to live on some other server at that data center and also has to live at uh, each of the data centers. And that way, if then the writer falls down, it will get brought back and recovered. It's through process pairs. And so, except for in this case, it's not a pair. We have four buddies out there. And so uh, that was an idea that came out of the research. How do we uh, recover? And uh, this, an, an idea that came out of that research was, okay, we could have just a reader at the same data center. What if the whole data center falls down? Okay, well, we'll write at, we'll have a reader at our data center and a reader at the data center nearest us. That was the next choice. It's like, well, why don't we go ahead and have them at all data centers? That way, if someone is doing, doing uh, say, data science work in uh, Utah, and uh, they're, they're trying to find patterns uh, of, of, of outcomes or something like this, and they're, they're doing training uh, or they're doing modeling, do they have to make the query all the way to Tampa to get, uh, you know, to, to, to Florida to get those, uh, the patients that, that were, showed up at Tampa or Orlando or something? And well, no, the, all the data is actually local. And so we have a CDN built in. So it's a backup plus a CDN. So those things are all live and can respond and can do things. They just can't accept rights. And if they accept, uh, if you can give them a write, and it'll say thank you, and it'll route it to the reader to the writer process <laughs> that was back over at the other data center. And so, uh, so for each human, there's going to be uh, you know five processes uh, running uh, to represent them. Uh, and as far as the scale of it, uh, you know, so we have millions of processes uh, that are running uh, on the cluster, and and each one of them has uh, each each process has four buddies out there, at least for the patient actors. There are other actors as well, but uh, there are other things involved in other processes, but that's the, the most interesting one and the one that's easiest to, to kind of look in from the, the peek in through the window and say, oh, I, I understand that. Does that help, Josh? Or did I leave anything out that you were curious about there? No, that, that pretty much covers it. Millions upon millions of processes spread across yeah. 32 we have to up, and four states. We have good. to override the default in Erlang. So uh, there's a, the, the sensible default that's there. We, we change that sensible default and we raise it uh, uh, like, uh, like an order of magnitude. So what do you use about uh, Erlang distribution and which bits are, are no good for what you're doing and you have <clears> to do something else with primitives? Yeah, so uh, early, uh, the, the early proofs, um, we tried different mechanisms. Uh, we... Uh, we used amnesia in a series of proofs, and it turns out uh, that we would always end up in corruption uh, if we had uh, dropping and setting things up and down. And so a lot of the, the kit uh, that was built for you, like amnesia and debts and things, we could always get into a fail state. Uh, and, you know, while those are very good and you have transactions and all this, uh, they were meant for uh, a really stable environment. And while we have a stable environment, we pretend like we don't. We're intentionally just, you know, yanking, 
you know, we're going around and like playing, uh, you know, punk in the servers, you know, just like yanking the cords on them and doing all this all the time, uh, just for sport, you know, uh, so we're like a bunch of bullies to the servers. Uh, so, so when we would do hard failure, and we're doing that for the instance of like, if, if a data center actually falls down, how will we handle it? And we would get into cases with amnesia where things wouldn't behave well and, uh, and things would get slow or we used, uh, uh, we tried lots of different systems that are out there uh, that uh, I, I don't want to go around and name names. I, I felt like it's okay to name um, amnesia. Amnesia is a perfectly good thing for a lot of cases. It wasn't good for us. One thing we knew is we, we couldn't have a centralized database because, well, every once in a while that database has to be patched or brought down or what happens if the database fails. And so, so we, we went around this, this core idea of no masters. And so each server in the cluster uh, is is its own unit and the server fails as a unit so if uh if uh, ram chips fail network fails whatever that box we will go ahead and just completely drop it uh, interestingly we have a process in place of where we can take one of these one u pizza box so see p people would look at like docker or kubernetes and say well hey you should be able to spin up an image really quick and you'd be you'd have a new instance stood up and it's like yep that's good we can also do that on one u servers so we we have a process where we burn down a server uh uh, we, we have Ansible playbooks where we walk through and we can take a server, uh, pave it, reinstall Linux, put the special HCA bits on it, uh, have it join uh, the domain and, and, and all that and have it install all the firewall bits, install uh, all of the, you know, everything that we need as far as port mappings and then drop an Erlang release on there and it spins up and joins the cluster. And this is a fully no-touch thing where you can go and, and rebuild a box from scratch if something does happen to it. And so, um, and, and so that, that process of being able to recover from that is, is good and helpful. We, we were talking about fault tolerance. I, 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 I went too far out on that limb uh, on my, uh, on my uh, tangents have a way with me where I'll, I'll find the interesting one and then we, I know We soak I them up. Yeah. So, so we were talking um, not distribution about specifically. Oh yeah, distribution. Yeah. Okay, okay. So we are distributed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we're distributed. We're using distributed Erlang. We're using uh, we use EPMD, but we don't use it implicitly. So we explicitly start off EPMD as a as a sysd service. Uh, so systemd, we we broke it off into its own service. It starts up. That's way we get actually log information out of uh, out of EPMD. Uh, we wouldn't have to use EPMD, and if it ever becomes a problem, we'll replace it. And that comes, that's a core idea, uh, and that's actually what I got me off onto the tangent a minute ago about servers, is we, the no masters and not depending on anything. So nothing that we depend on uh, can't be re has to be replaceable if we put a dependency on it. And so EPMD, we launch it as its own service. It's there bef uh, before uh, the water park node stands up, uh, and it fails independently. And if it did fail, we would just replace EPMD, and we'd make our, you know we go a different mechanism of actually joining uh, and having our chatter go uh, between between servers. We haven't had to do that; it's held up. You know, there's a lot of fear in the community around using distributed Erlang, and uh, and the idea that uh, uh, the the out of the box kits is, is unreliable. And I think that maybe there are parts in there that people use. Um, and they get caught up in the distributes of uh, the the fallacies of distributed computing, uh, where they try to pretend like there is no hop from server to server, 
And so what we do, we never, from a process, we never make a gen server call to another gen server on another server. Because you, there are too many places where you can get clobbered by that. There are too many, you know, too many things could go wrong between this process, and then you have to think about your failure cases, and, or you don't, you let it crash, which is the grown-up thing to do, but you have a whole lot of crashing going on then, more than you need to. And so a way you can simplify this is to say, okay, uh, everything has a mailbox, every process has a mailbox, and we send, process, we send uh, messages from this uh, process to another one through the mailbox. So let's also say, uh, let's add an intermediate layer in between on each server. Uh, we'll create this uh, mail room. And, and so what we're going to do in this mail room is we're going to abstract the idea of shipping things from this patient actor to this patient actor or from this part of the system to this other part of the system. And so all calls actually get routed through a, uh, through a post office. And so this lets you over time refine uh, and, and make hard, you know, to, to make it more malleable, to make it more resilient. Uh, all the communication between all your p pieces. And it also makes uh, unit testing really easy because you stand up a mock around your mail, mail room and uh, you now can, inside of unit tests, really test what's going to happen uh, with distribution and have all your failures be really easy. And so, so uh, having that abstraction is really nice. Uh, but so, uh, so we route through the mail room and we are just using RPC calls where if... Uh, uh, say a patient actor needs to route something to another patient actor, or if uh, if server X on the server needs to route something to server X on all of the nodes, or if we need to do that, it's just basically a series of uh, a kit built around RPC call that, that manages the whole delivery across each of those to the module, the function, and the arcs. And so everything is calling, instead of to the internals through message passing, it's calling through the API of the thing. And so we respect the APIs of, uh, of other things, and we don't do a lot of naked bangs of where we're sending uh, messages directly to a process. All right, so you touched on testing, and I'm a, I'm a testing zealot of, of oh, sorts. Oh, good. And, and unit, yep. tests, unit tests are interesting, of course, but uh, I'm, I'm more interested in what integration tests look like for this system. Yeah, so we, um, we, we have both uh, just straight-up unit tests, and the unit tests have actually... Uh, better and better over time uh, where every and this would be an odd thing if you looked at the water park code base uh, this might strike you uh, as being quirky but pretty much every uh, every top level module has a contract defined to it and we then uh, we you know hook into that behavior uh, and uh, the, uh, the module then implement this. And so anytime that we're making a module function args call, we're making an external call from module to module uh, from these top level things, there is a contract there that can be then mocked. And so the whole system is, is uh, kind of hyper broken out that way. So you can test things in isolation. Now that doesn't get help you if you've if you, if your glue is where the bug is at <laughs> so uh if you know where the the interaction between these things and so there are a few systems there we have this thing uh, called a collaborative test uh, where we would have uh, multiple processes that would run inside of a unit test and they would send messages to each other it was all the unit of the thing that was working but the kit of actually routing the message to one process to another was all mocked out where it was just you know the plumbing was faked and hooked in but the thing was really getting the message and so you would have two processes truly collaborating inside of these things and so that is an idea we do a lot of property-based testing around prop check around um 
uh, things with time, especially. Uh, and so we have a lot of complex event handlers uh, where we hook in to, to solve our business logic. Uh, so, um, and time is always harder than anyone can imagine it being. And so we have property-based tests that, that jump in and we mock the clock. Uh, so we have a dependency for the clock, for example. And so we have a dependency for for basically everything. <laughs> uh, and so uh, time being one of those things. And so uh, this way our property-based tests can go in and, and you know, shimmy the clock up and down and, and do all sorts of things with that slider uh, and, and find bugs in places where you wouldn't expect that they could exist. Uh, integration tests, we do cluster tests of where we start up a cluster. Uh, we're using kit that we sort of ripped off out of uh, Phoenix and modified for our own use. And it is, um, it can definitely find things. Those tests were really slow. Uh, and so this is built up on the old crusty Erlang slave node stuff. And, um, and it's, uh, it's faster than, um, than spinning up, uh, nodes. Uh, but it, you know, but it's fairly slow and, uh, and, and it's also one of the more fragile parts of the, of, of our test kit. Now we built up a, a few other things that are entirely uh, I haven't seen elsewhere, and this is where we we are using Docker and we're spinning up uh, a cluster, uh, basically uh, you know Docker you know composing and, and bringing up a, a cluster, and then running through automated acceptance tests uh, and walking through and, and and seeing how things go there, uh, running tests that way against the real live cluster and then dropping them. Then uh, other bits of where we are doing multi-version testing. So it's like, so we bring up a cluster that's running version uh, 400 of the software, and then we bring, and then we start rolling version 401 across the cluster. Uh, how does it behave? Uh, and so that has helped us. And then how do data structures change? And, and so getting logging of the data structure changes, uh, uh, if they, you know, sometimes you're surprised. It's like, oh, we didn't intend to change that, <laughs> but you can't see it inside of a PR. Uh, it's, it's, it's really tough to see it inside of the, uh, you know, GitHub view. Uh, because it's you nice to not sort need of to temporal. be perfect. Yeah, yeah, and so that is one of the things is uh, you know diligence is uh, is is really an evil thing. Uh, so you should never require diligence from people. Uh, people are really bad at uh, the set of things that computers are good at, and so uh, we try to to separate the human work from the machine work, and we try to have the machine do as much of the diligence work as possible. I really appreciate that answer. <laughs> okay, awesome. That seems like a nice place to wrap. Brian, if people want to find you on the internet, what's the best way to find you? Brian Hunter on Twitter. Uh, Brian underscore Hunter. There was, I think, some bodybuilder or something that had the, the, that the underscore back in 2000, whenever. Uh, when, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, Brian underscore Hunter. I love to hear from folks. And uh, while I'm not always tweeting uh, uh, <laughs> and not always out there as much as I used to be on this stuff, I, I, I definitely... Uh, at uh, lurk and so i respond to things when people hit me so if you have questions i'm tickled to answer awesome well to the listeners make sure you hit up brian with all of your <laughs> questions uh as you heard he's an incredible resource um from our end thank you so much for tuning in uh make sure you send those questions over to at theme radio one on twitter hashtag process mailbox again we pick your question you get a shirt very easy transaction also special thanks to our sponsor groxio for hosting See you next time.